Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child abuse, murder, racism, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the afternoon of March 6, 1978, Larry Flint and his lawyer, Gene Reeves Jr., had just finished up a business lunch. The pair walked back to the Gwinnett County Courthouse from the V&J cafeteria. Flint, the publisher of Hustler magazine, was in court facing charges for violating Georgia's state obscenity laws. But neither he or Reeves were nervous. This wasn't the first time that Flint found himself embroiled in a legal battle. But some hot water over his magazine wasn't all Flint needed to worry about that day. A short distance away, perched atop an abandoned building, Joseph Paul Franklin lay in wait. He watched Flint and his lawyer through the sight of his 44 caliber rifle, his finger on the trigger. On the outside, Franklin was calm, breathing deeply and watching his prey. But inside, his fury was great and uncontainable. As Flint and Reeves stepped up to the courthouse steps, Franklin took aim and squeezed the trigger. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're exploring the life of Joseph Paul Franklin, perhaps the most infamous racially motivated serial killer in United States history. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. Today, we'll take a look at Franklin's childhood, the obstacles he faced, and what drove him to start a self-declared race war across the United States. In our next episode, we'll focus on Franklin's killing spree that terrorized the South for a span of nearly three years. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light. And it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Hear that? 
It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. From the moment he entered this world on April 13, 1950, James Clayton Vaughn Jr., known most notoriously by his chosen name, Joseph Paul Franklin, was thrust into a life of violence. His father, James Sr., was an abusive alcoholic who verbally and physically assaulted James Jr. and his three siblings. James Sr. was a World War II veteran who suffered from occasional seizures and bounced from job to job. Sometimes James Sr. would leave the house for days at a time to go on binges, only to return when he was exhausted and out of money. But time home with young James Jr.'s mother, Helen, wasn't much better than that with Dad. She was also an abusive alcoholic. If they weren't directing vitriol at their kids, both parents would turn on each other in drunken arguments. When asked about his childhood, Franklin described it as torture, pure hell. It's hardly surprising then that Franklin never developed a connection to either of his parents. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to an article written by educational consultant Kendra Cherry, uninvolved parents like James Sr. and Helen lack the ability to provide the warmth, love, and devotion that their children crave. They keep themselves at arm's length and maintain an emotional distance. In James Jr.'s case, this neglect proved devastating. Not only did he feel a need to provide for himself, he developed a fear of dependency on others. As a result, James became emotionally withdrawn and exhibited delinquency, especially during adolescence. On top of the psychological suffering they went through, James Jr. and his siblings were neglected and malnourished. To make matters worse, it was increasingly difficult for any of the children to make and maintain friends. The family moved frequently, sometimes as many as four times a year. James Sr.'s heavy alcoholism made it difficult for him to hold down a job, so the family relocated to wherever there was work. After traveling all over the U.S., James Sr. eventually moved the family back to Alabama in 1961. They settled on the outskirts of Mobile, where the city scene was just as hectic, if not more so, than James Jr.'s home life. The 11-year-old witnessed the chaos and violence that went along with the fight for civil rights and the end of segregation. Legal segregation in the U.S. wouldn't be officially outlawed until 1964, and Mobile remained an epicenter of racial violence well into the 1990s. James Jr. was drawn to the mayhem. 
by now it felt like an extension of his home life. His parents had taught him that violence and aggression was a normal mode of expression. They also held racist attitudes towards black people. In his formative years, James Jr. was exposed to media reports of Ku Klux Klan attacks, which likely contributed to his developing racist ideology. According to a 2018 article published by psychologist Daniel J. Flannery, witnessing firsthand violence outside the home can increase the chance that a child will act aggressively, especially when growing up in an abusive household. Such children are also at risk of perpetrating violence against others. Flannery goes on to say that in some cases, children can come to believe that violence is an acceptable way to solve problems. But for James Jr., the world filled with violence was deeply confusing. Struggling to come to terms with his emotions and anxiety, he retreated. He escaped into other worlds where things were more straightforward. James Jr., who teachers described as quiet, loved reading. For the most part, he received good grades and got along well with his classmates. But as he got older, his preference for being alone slowly took over, and he spent more and more time in solitude. According to psychologist Joan Kaufman, director of research at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, victims of physical abuse tend to cut off social interactions with their peers. It's also possible that James didn't know how to make friends after moving around so often. So instead, he immersed himself in literature. He became a bookworm and withdrew from the world and people around him. He stopped listening to his teachers, having decided that reading on his own was the ideal education. But it was an education skewed by his burgeoning racist beliefs. He explored radical racist ideologies through books, most notably Adolf Hitler's 1925 autobiographical manifesto, Mein Kampf. The book attempts to justify Hitler's anti-Semitism and describes his political philosophy and plans for Germany. James Jr. immersed himself in the intoxicating words and interpreted Hitler's words literally. He felt the manifesto provided order to his life. Recently, life at home had grown more chaotic after James Sr. abandoned the family. The more James Jr. buried himself in the written word, the more he craved a stronger sense of order. While 12-year-old James Jr. struggled to make sense of the world, he suffered a frustrating setback. Riding his bicycle one day, he hit a pothole and he lost control. The bike careened off the highway and down an embankment. James Jr.'s injuries were so severe that he was left blind in his right eye. A study in the May 2014 issue of the Journal of Aggression and Violent Behavior found that a significant portion of mass or serial killers experience neurodevelopmental disorders, such as a severe childhood head injury. Of the 239 killers examined in the study, about 21% sustained or were suspected to have sustained head trauma. James Jr. was already headed down a concerning path, developing racist ideals from a young age. But this head injury, along with his history of abuse and violence in childhood, may have been what pushed him to act out on those beliefs as an adult. Healing from his accident and still reeling from his father's abandonment, James Jr. withdrew even further from the world around him. By the age of 14, he was spending as much time away from home as he could. 
It was around this time that he developed a close relationship with his uncle, who owned a nearby farm in Mobile. This uncle was, like James's parents, an outspoken racist, and he introduced his nephew to firearms, a hobby the teenager took to with zeal. The two spent their days shooting at random targets on the farm. Their frequent practice meant that, despite his limited eyesight, James Jr. was a great shot with both pistols and rifles. As James Jr.'s infatuation with guns grew more and more each week, so did his love of westerns. He couldn't get enough of them. But instead of emulating the heroes, James Jr. idolized the outlaws. He was enamored by the stories of Jesse James and Billy the Kid. He wanted to be them. Feeding his villainous desires, James Jr. further sequestered himself off to read their tales of rebellion. Between his habitual reading and time spent at his uncle's farm, James had time for little else. At the end of his sophomore year, he dropped out of school. By then, it was 1966. A new age spiritual movement was sweeping the country, and 16-year-old James Jr. wasn't immune. This enlightenment is famously associated with the drug and alcohol use of the late 60s. And though James never took drugs and wasn't a big drinker, he still found inspiration in the movement. But instead of expanding his mind in line with New Age spirituality, James Jr. gravitated towards more traditional religious beliefs. To better immerse himself, he considered joining the Unification Church of the United States. But it was a flirtation that didn't last long. James discovered that the church was anti-racist, promoted interracial marriages, and had a pro-communist stance throughout the Cold War. Needless to say, none of these things appealed to James, and he changed his mind about joining the church. But he wasn't deterred from tapping into his religious inclinations. The following year, in 1967, he developed an interest in a religious sect known as Christian Identity. The followers of this particular belief system insisted that modern Jews were imposters to their faith, who worshipped at the synagogue of Satan. In addition to this, and probably most appealing to James, was their credence that any non-white race were referred to as beasts of the field and were not true humans. In short, everything about Christian Identity's brand of hate spoke to James Jr., and his interest in the sect soon turned to obsession. He made it his mission to preach their ideals to whomever would listen. James truly felt like part of a family for the first time in his life. Emboldened by this feeling and excited by the beliefs of Christian Identity, James made it his mission to start a race war in the United States. While 18-year-old James Jr. started formulating a strategy, he started dating 16-year-old Bobby Louise Dorman. It was his first serious romantic relationship, and the pair were quickly infatuated. After just two weeks of dating, James and Bobby Louise were married at a local courthouse. It's possible that James was desperate to begin a family of his own, wanting a place to belong, as he'd found with his church. But unsurprisingly, the marriage got off to a troubling start, particularly for young Bobby. Mirroring the actions of his mother and father, James viciously beat his wife and constantly berated her. While James was able to escape his parents' alcoholism, he seemed doomed to repeat the abuse that plagued his childhood. 
According to Dr. Bruce D. Perry, chief of psychiatry at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, children model adult behavior, no matter how destructive. He goes on to say that maltreated children may eventually believe that violence is an integral part of a close relationship. James was arrested several times for domestic abuse, and after less than a year, the marriage ended in divorce. He'd failed at this first adult endeavor and was ready to move on to the next. Further mimicking the behavior learned from his father, James Jr. packed up and left Alabama behind. He headed for Washington, D.C. with a clear purpose. He'd heard of a group that shared his racist beliefs, and he wanted in. Coming up, James Clayton Vaughn Jr. joins the American Nazi Party. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. In 1969, 19-year-old James Clayton Vaughn Jr., later known as Joseph Paul Franklin, relocated temporarily from Alabama to Washington, D.C. His failed marriage left him yearning for a sense of connection, and he was sure he'd found the perfect group. Once he arrived in D.C., he joined the American Nazi Party, a group based largely on the ideals of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Party. Having pored over the pages of Mein Kampf as a child, James Jr. felt perfectly suited to this new community of hate. He firmly believed that forcible integration of black students into schools was a conspiracy against America and what he deemed the white race. His racist and anti-Semitic views ran so deep that he was convinced that a coalition of Jewish people and communists was behind this forced integration. In short, he believed in everything that the Nazi party stood for, and he was ready to go to war for them. So he actively participated in the group's counter-protests against civil rights demonstrations. The party was a small group, though, and going through changes of its own. The group's founder, George Lincoln Rockwell, who coined the term white power, had recently been assassinated. So, with new leadership, James hoped to make a good impression and solidify his place in the group. Despite his efforts, James Jr. didn't find the acceptance he so craved. His beliefs aligned with theirs, but ironically, his physical appearance wasn't what they were looking for. 
Standing at 5'11 with a slouched, slender frame, the long-haired James looked more like a hippie than an upstanding member of the Nazi party. And because he had a slow pattern of speech, his fellow party members suspected he used drugs. James was undeterred, though. He wanted acceptance more than anything, and he would do whatever it took to make that happen. According to the book Everyone Needs Attention by psychologist Tamar Jacobson, this form of desperation probably stems from James's upbringing. Having been abused, neglected, then eventually abandoned, he likely felt that overcompensating would lead to acceptance. Around that time, an anti-war protest was planned through the streets of Washington, and the American Nazi Party wanted to form a blockade. They believed the march to be unconstitutional and were determined to meet the protesters head on. The party had a dilemma, though. They didn't have enough members to form an effective blockade. Eager to contribute, desperate for acceptance, 19-year-old James apparently suggested an alternative. They should attack the anti-war committee's office once the parade began. The plan was given the go-ahead. And on the day of the march, according to later interviews, he and a hand-picked team made their way to the committee's office. After picking the lock, James and his cohorts walked from one room to the next, placing smoke bombs in each. Once everything was in place, the Nazis made a hasty retreat from the building. When the bombs went off moments later, they caused enough damage that the offices were rendered unusable for weeks. Pulling off this task finally garnered James the respect he was looking for. It even earned him a higher rank within the party, which provided him more responsibilities. But the praise was short-lived. He was unable to come up with another idea as good as his first. Before long, talk among his cohort was that James was a one-trick pony. And if there's one hurt that racist ideologues can't abide, it's damage to their fragile ego. James realized that he'd never be accepted by the group, no matter how much he wanted it. Any further time spent in D.C. would be wasted. So in late 1969, he did what he'd seen his parents do countless times. He threw his belongings in a suitcase and left town. His family had no idea where he was for the next few years. Much like his move to D.C., James selected his next home with one goal in mind, to spread his beliefs and ideologies. So, with the civil rights movement picking up momentum, James headed to Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta was experiencing heavy racial turmoil at the time, with newspapers and broadcasters focusing on what was known as busing. This was the process of transporting students to schools within or outside their local school districts as a means of rectifying racial segregation. However, some community members from both the white and black communities disapproved of this. Many felt that transporting children to neighborhoods where they weren't welcome was a potentially dangerous idea. Buses carrying black students to white schools were pelted by eggs, bricks, and bottles. Arriving in Atlanta, James felt he could best exploit this turmoil by joining the National States Rights Party, a far-right white supremacist party led by J.B. Stoner and Edward Fields. The party was based on anti-Semitism, racism, and opposition to racial integration. They were dedicated to stopping the civil rights movement in its tracks. It was music to James's bigoted ears. Right off the bat, James was welcomed into the group. 
He was excited, but wary after his experiences with the Nazi party in DC. And it turns out he had every reason to be skeptical. He was tasked with leading the group's propaganda efforts, but quickly discovered this involved nothing more than handing out leaflets. There was no room for advancement within the group, and people shunned the literature he was trying to distribute on the street. It was humiliating, and James was fed up. He wanted more, not just in terms of responsibility, but from the group as a whole. He felt they weren't doing all they could. Handing out flyers wasn't enough. As he'd learned at his father's knee, James was convinced that violence was a more effective way to communicate their message. But he failed to convince anyone, so he packed his bags and headed right back to where his life began. In 1973, 23-year-old James Jr. returned to his home state of Alabama to find his mother had died the year prior. Reeling from the loss and further alienated from his family, he continued to commit to racist causes. Sometime that year, he became the newest member of the United Clans of America, a white supremacy group. Having joined forces with the KKK in 1960, the UKA was the most violent Klan organization of its time. By 1973, the group was notorious for the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham that killed four young girls. They also claimed responsibility for the 1965 murder of Viola Laiuzzo near Selma in 1965. Given their bloody history, James was sure it was exactly the kind of group he was destined for. In addition to their past, James was particularly fascinated by the way United Clans trained their members in combat skills. James hadn't forgotten his desire to ignite a race war in the USA and wanted to learn as many violent tactics as he could. He was willing to take the time to become a great soldier. Living at the camp set up by the UKA, James' daily routine involved weapons training and further teachings about racist ideology. In their ongoing fight to be bigots, the group preached the art of intimidation as part of their long-term plan for a total white revolution. Although he was already a skilled marksman, the UKA taught James how to use and operate a wide array of weapons and explosives, such as dynamite, claymore mines, AR-15 rifles, gas masks, night scopes, and even anti-tank weapons. By 1976, 26-year-old James Jr. felt like he had mastered the art of guerrilla warfare. He was ready for the next step in his journey towards a race war. He believed violence was the appropriate form of action for a country at war with itself. He would often say, violence is good if it's directed towards the right people. As a sort of final act of transformation into this violence, James Jr. officially changed his name to Joseph Paul Franklin, inspired by Paul Joseph Goebbels and Benjamin Franklin, respectively. Joseph Paul Franklin had spent years thinking his country was turning into his enemy, and he blamed three different groups for that, Jewish people, black people, and white people in interracial relationships. Still firm in his belief that violence was the best option, Franklin meticulously plotted his next steps. He compiled a list of aliases, created fake IDs, put together disguises, and amassed an arsenal of guns. All he had to do now was pick his first target. Coming up, Joseph Paul Franklin sets out to ignite a race war. 
Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1977, the 27-year-old, newly self-christened Joseph Paul Franklin prepared for his new mission. Fueled by racist rhetoric and armed with guerrilla warfare tactics, he hoped to ignite a nationwide revolution against black and Jewish people. Franklin had convinced himself that the Jewish people were truly evil and responsible for most of the world's problems, and so they would be his first targets. He compiled a list of potential Jewish victims, then narrowed it down to one man, Morris J. Amitay, a high-profile pro-Israel congressional lobbyist. Franklin spent days researching Amitay, eventually tracking down his home address in Washington, D.C. Franklin spent several days staking out the house. Watching Amitay's day-to-day pattern, Franklin deduced that his best, most efficient means of attack would be the use of explosives. He decided to blow up the home and everyone in it, including Amitay's wife and three children. Using a fake driver's license, Franklin purchased 50 pounds of dynamite and constructed a makeshift bomb in his hotel room. In the early morning hours of July 25, 1977, Franklin arrived at Amitay's split-level house in an affluent subdivision of Rockwell. Under cover of darkness, he placed the homemade bomb outside the living room, directly below the bedrooms. He then ran an extension cord from the side of the house to a nearby alley and attached the wire to a detonator. At 3.17 a.m., Franklin ignited the bomb, which produced a thundering blast that resonated for miles. The Amitay's living room wall was completely blown off, leaving glass and debris scattered throughout the neighborhood. The force of the explosion was so strong that a portion of the neighbor's roof was lifted off. In fact, the vibrations were so severe that houses five blocks away reported damage. Fortunately, the bomb didn't ignite a fire. And despite all the destruction, Amitay, his wife, and their three daughters walked away from the incident without a scratch. Their new beagle puppy, however, was killed. It was clear the attack was an assassination attempt, so the FBI were brought in to work the case. They were able to retrieve a large amount of physical evidence from the scene, but nothing that pointed to a clear suspect. And while they continued their investigation, Franklin was already planning his next attack. Frustrated that he failed to kill Amitay and his family, Franklin remained undeterred in his quest. In fact, his failure proved to be a motivation. He left Washington and drove to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Despite having a relatively low Jewish population, the city was home to quite a few synagogues scattered throughout the city. Franklin got a room at a hotel and searched for the perfect target. Flipping through the phone book in his hotel room, Franklin wrote down the addresses of each synagogue in the city. Eventually, he settled on the Bet Shalom Synagogue. Franklin knew that if he carried out his attack during services, he would kill as many people as possible. So on Friday, July 29, 1977, Franklin placed another homemade bomb inside the empty synagogue and set a timer. But that evening, the congregants gathered earlier than Franklin expected. He watched from across the street as each of his would-be victims walked out of the sanctuary before the timer went off. 
The bomb detonated in an empty synagogue. Though it caused a good amount of damage to the building, no one was injured. Just like his first attack, federal agents were called in. When agents discovered that this bomb matched the composition of the one outside Morris Amate's house, they knew they were the work of the same culprit. But before anything could be traced to him, Franklin had skipped town. So far, Franklin was zero for two in his attempts to ignite a nationwide race war. Despite his shortcomings, though, Franklin never lost focus. In fact, his failures crystallized things. He realized that he would have to change his methodology if he was going to start the violent revolution he so desired. He would go back to basics, to what he and his uncle had been training with for years, guns. He already had an impressive arsenal at his disposal, so he was prepared to move on. And he had Madison, Wisconsin in his sights. Franklin read a newspaper article about a local Madison judge, Archie Simonson, who showed leniency towards two black teenagers accused of raping a white woman. This infuriated Franklin, and he decided to look into the judge. What he discovered only fueled his rage. Judge Simonson was Jewish. As he had with Amate, he surveyed Simonson for days before he decided that the best plan of attack was to assassinate the judge in his home. On the afternoon of August 7, 1977, 27-year-old Franklin stopped by the East Town Mall to pick up some last-minute supplies for his attack. But when he tried to leave, he found his car was blocked in by another vehicle. The driver was idling, waiting for a spot to open up nearby. Impatient, Franklin confronted the man. His frustration quickly turned to rage when he saw the driver and his female passenger, Alphonse Manning Jr. and Tony Schwen, were an interracial couple. When he spotted the rifle in Franklin's back seat, Alphonse threatened to call the police. In response, Franklin later confessed to authorities he pulled out a pistol and shot him. Terrified, Tony screamed and tried to run, but Franklin fired two bullets into her back instantly killing the young woman. Alarmed by the gunshots, a small group of people gathered about the scene. Franklin had just murdered two people in broad daylight. Realizing he needed to make a hasty escape, he ducked back into his car and got away. As he raced down the interstate, he was overcome with a feeling of accomplishment. He abandoned his plan to assassinate the judge. His impulsive murder of the interracial couple gave him satisfaction enough. But now he knew it was important to get as far away from his murders as possible. So Franklin traveled south, drifting from one state to the next. He used his disguises to rob small banks whenever he needed cash. But this routine only lasted for a few weeks, until Franklin's urge to kill resurfaced. In October of 1977, he rented a room in a small St. Louis, Missouri motel. There, he flipped through the phone book, searching for synagogues. Although murdering an interracial couple had been satisfying, Franklin was hell-bent on killing a member of the Jewish community. He scoped out the area and settled on Brit Shalom, a synagogue in Richmond Heights. This time, instead of using a bomb, he aimed to take out as many as his rifle would allow. On the evening of Saturday, October 8th, Franklin hid in a small patch of shrubbery across the street from the temple. 
A bar mitzvah was coming to an end. Franklin pulled out his rifle and aimed it directly at the synagogue's front doors. As congregants emerged, Franklin opened fire. The first shot from the single-action rifle struck one member of the synagogue, sending people around them into a frenzy. As Franklin reloaded, people scattered in different directions. This made it difficult for him to hone in on individual targets, but he persisted. By the time he was done, Franklin had shot three people, killing 42-year-old Gerald Gordon and injuring two others. When police showed up to the synagogue, Franklin was already back at his motel. He scoured the news stations, hoping to see coverage of his attack. The shooting made the local news, but it didn't seem to go any further. Franklin wanted to ignite a national race war, and he couldn't do that if his attacks didn't make it beyond small news stations. After a couple of months of cooling off, he came to the conclusion that if he wanted his message to be spread far and wide, his next victim needed to be famous. He drew up a short list of possible targets, but one name kept making its way to the top, Larry Flint. Flint had made a name for himself as the founder and publisher of Hustler magazine. Hustler's goal was to compete and eventually outsell competitors like Playboy and Penthouse. But whereas those two purported to be arthouse magazines, Flint outright admitted that Hustler was nothing more than pure pornography. However, it wasn't the pornography itself that Franklin took issue with. It was the fact that Flint published pictures of an interracial couple having sex. The photos enraged Franklin and made his decision all the easier. He would kill Larry Flint. When Franklin discovered that Flint was in Lawrenceville, Georgia to face obscenity charges, he gathered up his 44 caliber rifle and prepared himself for the hunt. Maintaining his usual routine, Franklin checked into a motel and surveilled the area surrounding the courthouse. During the trial, he noticed that Flint and his lawyer, Gene Reeves Jr., frequented a nearby cafeteria for lunch each day. Franklin found an abandoned building across the street from the courthouse and diner and decided it was the perfect sniper's nest. On the morning of March 6, 1978, 28-year-old Joseph Paul Franklin broke into the building and perched on the roof. He watched as Flint and his lawyer had lunch. Then, when they left the diner, he marked them through his scope. As they walked towards the courthouse, Franklin aimed for Flint's heart and pulled the trigger. The bullet punctured the side of his chest and exited into Reeve's shoulder, knocking the lawyer to the ground. Flint was still standing, though hunched over. By now, the crowd was scattering to find cover, leaving Flint and Reeves the only two out in the open. This made it easier for Franklin to focus on his target. He squeezed the trigger and another shot rang out. This one struck Flint in the abdomen, causing him to fall over. Satisfied to see Flint motionless on the ground, Franklin escaped through the back of the building. A few miles away, he found a payphone and called the courthouse. When the secretary answered, Franklin said, Tell solicitor Gary Davis he doesn't have to worry about Larry Flint anymore. Jesus has taken a handle on it. But hours later, Franklin discovered that Flint had survived the attack. Unable to accept another failure, Franklin drove to the hospital with the intention of finishing the job. But security was much too tight. 
Franklin was livid. This was another defeat he couldn't accept. But the pain of yet another failure was alleviated somewhat when the assassination attempt made headlines across the country. He may have failed to kill his target, but he held out hope that he could build on the momentum. He even took comfort in knowing that a bullet from his rifle caused Flint to be paralyzed from the waist down. And investigators were frustrated by the case. Flint had garnered so many death threats that authorities were unable to pinpoint any suspects or groups. Franklin felt confident he couldn't be caught. Despite his many setbacks, Franklin felt unstoppable, and his latest crime's notoriety reinvigorated his commitment to his cause. He was determined to start his race war, one way or another. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. In the next episode, we'll continue Joseph Paul Franklin's story, including his murder spree that rocked the country. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Matt Clifford, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 